Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We um, want to look to Jude, the Lord's brother. So if you have a Bible, we're going to run around the New Testament, and then we'll end up in the book of Jude at the end. The title is simply Jude, the Lord's brother. Um, Erico, Caruso, that um, famous tenor told of an experience which would um, seem to prove that no man is as well known as he thinks he is. He says, quote, while motoring in upper New York, my automobile broke down and I sought refuge in a lonely farmhouse while the car was being repaired. The farmer and I got into a conversation and after a while he asked me my name. I told him it was Caruso. The farmer jumped to his feet and exclaimed, grabbing my hand, I never thought I would ever see a man like you here in my kitchen, Caruso, the great traveler, Robinson Caruso. One time a similar thing happened. We were in Israel, and Pastor Ron Wilkins, some of you guys know him, he's always, he makes you, your face hurts after a while because you laugh so much. And uh, he was, we were on the bus, getting off the bus, and this, this woman comes up to him on the, on the trip. She goes, are you Pastor Ron Wilkins? He goes, yes, I am. How did you know? Did you hear me on the radio? She goes, no, you have your name tag on. <laughs> the, the conclusions we come to at times, whether it be purposeful or innocent, is, is, it's funny at times. The Jew was not like Caruso though he could have um, attempted to use the family relationship of his brother, he was simply a bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's how he addresses himself. Amazing. And certainly we know people that drop names and use relative associations or whatever. And when he wrote that one little letter that we'll end up looking at, just simply a bondservant. One by choice, goes back to the Old Testament, slaves to his master. Let's look at Jude from a threefold perspective. Jude the agnostic, that's what we'll look at first, what the scriptures tell us. Then we'll move to Jude the believer. And we'll finish up with Jude the author. Jude the agnostic. Jude was an unbeliever during the years of his childhood with Jesus, as we'll see, as well as his brothers and sisters. The man Jude, his name means um, he shall be praised. Um, the tribe of Judah, praise. Beautiful name. The Jude in the English form is that of Judas. So Jude and Judas, different forms. Jude was the brother of James, the author of the book of James. And if you're with us in our in-depth study of him, what an incredible, incredible book that is. Uh, he was a straight shooter. Uh, Jude would not fit in today. Jude would be called critical, self-righteous, uncompassionate, unloving, bitter old man. Because <laughs> he commands the believer to be doers of the word of God. You find that he is the brother of James in Acts fifteen thirteen, and also in the introduction of James one one. 
Jude was the half-brother to Jesus, but full-brother to James. Matthew 13, 55, you get that. James appears to be the oldest of the brothers and sisters since um, um, Jesus is mentioned um, first. And then James. Jude could have been the youngest of the children or second to the youngest, seeing his name is mentioned last in Matthew, but second in the last second to the last, in Mark. In fact, Matthew 13, 55 and 56, the beginning, says this. In the context on both of these occasions was the synagogue of Nazareth, and the people were in amazement at the wisdom of Jesus and his teachings and the mighty works and things that he was declaring. It says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? His brothers, James, Joseph, Simeon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Interesting. Which implies, as we'll point out later on, that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Of course, half. Mary was his mother and the mother of all his other brothers and sisters. But Joseph was not his father, but Joseph was the father of all the others. Simple. There are others in Scripture named Jude. You have Jude. Um, Judah was the son of Jacob, remember, by, by Leah. And in Acts 5.37, it says, After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So that was the rebellion that took place at that time. At Acts 9.11, it says, So the Lord said to him, um, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Remember the conversion of Paul. That's Acts 9.11. And then you have Acts 15.22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Acts fifteen twenty seven says, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. And then the last one, fifteen thirty two of Acts. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. So you have the name that is, appears through the scriptures, but you have to distinguish between the individuals who pertain to that name. The name Judas is ascribed to two of the, of the apostles. The first one is Judas, the son of James. You find this in Luke 1.16 and John 14.22. Also known as Judas Labius or Thaddeus in Matthew 10.3. Mark 3.18 and Luke 6.16 and John 14.22. So as you look at the Gospels, one time it's his name after the one, Labius, and the other one's Thaddeus. They're the same individual. So you have to cross-reference them. Then the other individual is an apostle. is Judas Iscariot, of course, which we're all very familiar with in Luke 6 
16. So, two of the apostles of Jesus Christ were named Judas. The years of Jude's childhood are silent to us. The Bible says that Mary brought forth her firstborn, namely Jesus, implying that she had other children, which is very, very clear. Uh, Matthew one twenty-five. Now often, if you come out of the Catholic Church, you know that the Catholic Church always that Jesus was the only child and that that reference is really to cousins. Um, no Greek scholar would ever agree with that at all. They're half-brothers and half-sisters. Um, I don't know, maybe now they acknowledge it, the way the Catholic Church has changed so much. It could be. I don't know. But I don't think so. Because that would do away with the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? So you, you got to deal with that also. When you put the Catholic dogmas that contradict the Scriptures, then you got to protect the dogma, right? Because it's higher than Scripture. And that happens all the time. The Gospels tell us of the trip to Egypt, the return and the fact that they resided in Nazareth, if you remember. But again, nothing is mentioned about the children in Matthew 2, 13 through 23. So we get records of the family moving, but no real specific information about the children. The Gospel of Luke also tells us of one trip to Jerusalem by Joseph and Mary with Jesus. Discovering Jesus was still in Jerusalem, you remember. They went back and he was asking questions to the doctors. We get a little glimpse, a little window there. Now, at that time, he's 12 years old. Nothing else is known about the family until Jesus begins his ministry around 30 years of age. The attitude and conduct of James and the other children towards Jesus is unknown. But knowing that they were children like you and I, of earthly human parents with a sin nature, and they had one too, we can only imagine that they were like any other. Of course, all we can do is speculate, but our speculation is based upon myself as a sinner and you and the whole human race. And we pretty well know human um, nature, and especially children. Children are the most innocent, but at the same time, they can be the most cruel at times to one another. And it's just part of the sin nature. Jude and the others must have looked up to their older brother Jesus as they were growing up, I'm sure. But then as they're growing up, Jude and others probably were jealous and even envious of the godliness of Jesus, especially during the teen years. I mean, how do you explain it? Do you, I mean, did, what did Mary do? Did she spank him with a golden spoon or what? Those are, we're never told anything, right? And, and if he was obedient to his parents, then he probably didn't cause much ruckus, right? So those are all speculative. We don't know. But there was a definite distinction between them. Now, Jude was an unbeliever during the years of the ministry of Jesus also. So Jude and the rest of the brothers and sisters, they did not believe in Jesus as they were growing up. Then when he starts his ministry, none of them believed who Jesus was either. Once again, we know nothing about the brothers and sisters of Jesus during his ministry. We get little glimpses. It must have baffled them as uh, John, their cousin, 
identified Jesus as the Lamb of God in John 1.29 after he came back from the temptation in 40 days. Our brother, Lamb of God. And yet it doesn't square with our mentality because we know that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her exactly that which is conceived use of the Holy Spirit. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. He shall save his people from their sins. And she harbored all these things in her heart as she dedicated him and Simeon said, a sword shall pierce your heart. And yet how is it possible then that the children weren't aware of, we don't know. No information is given to us. So where the Bible doesn't speak, we shouldn't speak. And when we present something, it's speculation. It could have been. And based on our nature, we know that they're going to be kids like anybody else. That's not far-fetched. Now, perhaps um, they were even dumbfounded at times when individuals asked them about their brother certain questions. Even embarrassed, angry, hearing about some of the things that Jesus said or did. (laughs) They must have questioned his teaching that so often seemed to contradict the law that was being taught by the Pharisees. Now, there are a few occasions in which Jude is probably indicated by the text in the New Testament. The first is in John 2.12. It was after the wedding feast at Canaan, if you recall, where Jesus had turned the water into wine. And it says that Jesus went down to Capernaum, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So they're just lumped up in a group, not by name, but notice that it's not redundant. It doesn't mean. Let me see here. I just hit something here. It went for me. Here we go. Verse 12. Notice he says. That. Let me see if I missed it here. The brother time probably knew something. Okay. Um, oh, here we go. The first was after the wedding feast. Okay, and he said there, he says, um, and Jesus turned water into wine there, and, and they said that he went down to Capernaum, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. So you cannot make brothers and disciples the same thing. This is what some people would like to make. There's a clear distinction between brothers and disciples, okay? The brothers there are not Christians, okay? That's not the phrase they're using at that point anyway, Christian brothers, all right? They're all Jewish. And to make a clear distinction that he's talking about the bloodline, the same relationship. Now, the second was when uh, the family attempted to speak to Jesus as... um, he was speaking in Galilee, and the multitude told him that his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. You find that in Matthew twelve forty six, if you recall. 
very clearly they're talking about mother, brothers, sisters, relatives. The third occasion is John 7, 3 through 5. Six months before the cross is the context here. His brothers told Jesus to go up to the feast in Judea so that his disciples might see the work that he was doing there in verse 3. They told Jesus that no one did anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly, taunting him to show himself to the world. Then he told them, for his brothers, we are told his brothers did not believe in him, verse 5. So very clearly, they didn't believe in him as they were growing up, and they didn't believe on Jesus' Messiah when he began his ministry. They were unbelievers. In fact, Jude was an unbeliever during the time of the crucifixion, if you remember. Only his mother was at the cross. Only John was at the cross. And all his disciples were drawn back. John's right at the cross. Not Jude, nor any other of the brothers of or sisters believed in Jesus prior to the cross. Keep in mind that Jude was only a half-brother to Jesus, having the same mother, but not the same father again. That applies to all of his brothers and sisters. So Jesus had declared that a prophet was without honor in his own home in Mark 6, 4. Some of you have experienced that as um, you're born again and You've gone back to share with your family members, your brothers, sisters, or father and mother. And um, they may be completely opposed to what you've done, becoming a Christian. Or they may just say, well, that's, that's nice for you. But they don't believe what you say sometimes. But they're going to be watching. And so Jesus was not accepted as that prophet that he was, little the Messiah. It has been said that you cannot repent too soon because you know not how soon it may be too late. And that true repentance is never too late, but late repentance is seldom true. Ooh, that's good. Because people are always looking to that death bed conversion, right? You don't know how many people always tell me, well, you know, and, and, but, you know, but he accepted the Lord. I'm not going to argue with him. At this point, it's mute. We'll have to wait till we get there. The only way I can know that you're going to be in heaven, and I could even be wrong there, is as I see your life from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, your consistent walk in the Lord. That's the only way I can vouch for you. Yeah, he'll be in heaven. Can somebody fool me? Yeah, that's a possibility. But when a person accepts the Lord on his deathbed, it could be genuine. It could not. I don't know. I think it's the exception. I don't think it's the rule. 
You usually die the way you live. You remember that God said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The Bible says about the Pharisees, and they could not believe. Not they would not, they could not believe. The longer we harden our heart, the closer we get to that line that we cross, that God and all his love can do nothing for us. I don't know where that is, but it's out there. And so, um, it's something that we have to be aware of. Some people are mocked for their faith by their parents, their brothers, their sisters, their friends. You know, you've, you've seen the gamut of it. Perhaps you still are not safe tonight, but you have watched your brothers, your sisters, or friends, and you've seen their life. And um, you see some truth and validity of it, but you're still not quite convinced. And God gives you the witness of someone to look at it that you may see the oneness of the message and the life, but it's only through the gospel as it's preached that the Holy Spirit convicts you of your own lostness and turns the light on of your need of salvation. Men cannot do that. I cannot persuade any person that they are sinners or that they need salvation. I can proclaim it, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit makes it alive to the individual. And when that proclamation comes forth, there can be a hundred people. And three of them, God, they're open to God's illumination and they repent. And the other 97 are saying, when is this guy going to shut up so we can get out of here? The difference is the condition of the heart. It has nothing to do with brains. Nothing to do with academics. It has everything to do with God's grace and your openness to agree with God. Luke 12, 15, 11-32 says, And as you do, you may think that you could never be a Christian as a prodigal son afraid to return. Some people, you know, they, that, that parable has been so distorted. And again, that's the one of three parables. Remember, the first parable is the lost sheep, the lost coin. And the prodigal son is the third parable, the, the, the climactic parable. And, in, and people use that. Pastors use that. Christians use that. Authors, commentators use that all the time. As a Christian who walks away, then he'll always come back. He's a prodigal. I beg your pardon. Listen to the confession and the revelation of the father of the prodigal to the other son that never left. Son, because he was envious, right? He was, oh, you know, you do this party and you know, I've been here all my life. He says this, son, your brother was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. The prodigal was never born again until he came back home. When he was in the pig's pen, that's when he got born again. He wasn't born again when he left. So next time somebody tells you that, you rebuke him. It's an absolute distortion of that climactic parable. It's one of three. And so 
the cry as always for people to repent. John 3.16. The truth is that you are the only one who can do anything about it. The wages of sin is death. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans 10, 9 and 10. And whoever has a son has life. And whoever does not have the son has not life. And the wrath of God abides in them. John three thirty six. Those are pretty heavy words. Now people think that I'm real straightforward and offensive and everything. Have you ever read the New Testament? Words of Jesus? John the Baptist? Words of Paul? Peter? I'm a lightweight. So this was Jude, the agnostic, if you will. Today we got agnostics, atheists, and all kinds of stuff, right? The um, concentration camps or the re-educational camps or the universities today. Princeton, Yale, Berkeley, all that were at the beginning Christian institutions for the gospel. Now they are against the gospel. Absolutely adamant. Amazing. So then let's move to Jude the believer. Judah became born again. Jude was born again on the day of Pentecost as well as his brothers and sisters. You find that in Acts chapter 1 verse 14. They were in one accord in prayer, supplication with the women and Mary. And they were praying to Jesus, not to Mary. And Mary was also praying to Jesus, not herself. And Mary probably spoke in tongues like the rest of them. <laughs> so they weren't in the upper room all praying to Mary. Mary was there and she was praying to Jesus. All right? It's real clear. Now James, in contrast, was at some time after the resurrection born again. First Corinthians 15, 5 through 8 says this. And that he was seen by Cephas, Paul Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains to the present. But some have fallen asleep after that. He was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as, by, as one born out of due time. And so James got born again. We don't know exactly what, but after the day of Pentecost. Jude was numbered with the um, 120 in the upper room. Again, Acts 1.15. Jude must have been a sight for sore eyes when Peter saw him sitting in their midst as he stood to declare the need of choosing one to replace Judas Iscariot. <laughs> Jude perhaps thought at one time that it would be impossible to see all the family saved. Maybe you've been there. My brother first got saved, then I got saved, then my sisters got saved, then my mom and dad got saved, but, but we didn't know. We just kept praying and seeing what God would do and one at a time. Sometimes entire families get saved, but they are saved individually by choice, not as a family. Many people try to use the scripture in the book of Acts where the Philippian jailer and he and all his family were saved and that that's a promise. If you're saved, one, the rest are going to be saved. That's completely out of context. So many things are taken out of context and people just blab them off like if they're absolute biblical truth. And they're not. No one is forced to go to heaven. 
Jude was numbered with a 120 in the upper room again and, and, and 115. Um, and so we have the early conversion of Jude there. Um, you can imagine the thoughts that went through him once he was born again and, and, and thinking back just on their growing up and everything else and they're saying, why can't I believe it? You know, but you can't, you don't believe that Jesus is the Lord and Savior because you can figure it out. Paul says, uh, if they would have known that Jesus Christ was God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay? It's just that simple. You think the centurions there at the crucifixion, if they could say, hey, don't mess with him, that's God. If they would have been able to figure out that he was God through an intellectual, natural process, they wouldn't even touch him. Are you kidding? But they couldn't. Jew dropped out of the picture as far as the scriptures are concerned. Whether Jude helped James as one of the leading men in the New Testament and the church, we don't know. He's never mentioned. Whether Jude was present with James, the Lord's brother, um, when Paul had fled from Damascus to Jerusalem, we don't know. Paul gives us different uh, information, but not that. Galatians 1.19, Acts 9.26, as he got converted... Then he was there preaching the gospel, went to Arabia. Jesus taught him for three years. Then he reaches the king, wanted to take his head off. So they let him down through a basket. He scurried over to Jerusalem. He saw Peter, James, the Lord's brother. Besides that, he didn't know who else. He got too hot to handle. The Jews were going to kill him. And God told him, send him up in our art to Tarsus for about seven to nine years. And Paul says, Lord, I, 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 let me, you know, they know who I was. They're not going to receive your testimony. You see, it has to be by the work of the Spirit of God. I can imagine the questions they must have asked Paul. Because remember, the twelve were taught by Jesus for three years, right? A little bit over three years. Paul got the same discipleship, personally by Jesus. Now, whether Jude was present with James after Peter has been rescued by the angel from prison in Acts 12, 17. And he went to the house of John Mark's mother, where the church was praying for him without faith, <laughs> around 44 AD. They declared, go tell these things to James and to the brethren so, James, the leading elder at Jerusalem, confirmed by the First Church Council. Whether Jude was present when James spoke on the leading spokesman there at the First Church Council in Acts 15, we're not told. It could have been, but we're not told. So he literally drops out of complete um, sight as far as the record is. Finally, James concurred with the testimony and commanded that letter to be sent out to the Gentiles, as you know, to keep them from being bullied by the Judaizers. And letters were sent out to keep themselves from fornication, from blood, from strangled things. If they did that, they would do well. And the letter says, you know, there's some that have gone off from among us, burdening the Gentiles. 
teaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. And they told me, there's no such thing. And we're just warning you, we stand behind you. He said in the letter sent out, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these things. Notice the order. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Today, the church is saying, it seems good to us. <laughs> the church today is organized and sanitized and corporized and everything else. <laughs> And we've got all our technology and all our human ability and everything else. And what the church is lacking is the power of the Holy Spirit to work in the midst of people. Two or three years before the death of John Newton, when his sight was so dim that he was uh, no longer able to read, I'm catching up to him. A friend and brother in ministry called to have breakfast with him. And their custom was to read the word. And the following mealtime, after which Newton would um, make a few short remarks about the Bible or the biblical passage, and then an appropriate prayer would be offered. And that day, however, there was silence after the words of Scripture. And he said, quote, By the grace of God, I am what I am, were read. Finally, after several minutes, Newton spoke, I am not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient I am. I am not what I wish to be, although I abhor that which is evil and would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be, but soon I shall be out of, immortal out of mortality, and with it all sin and imperfection. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor yet what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. I can hardly join with the apostles and acknowledge that by the grace of God I am what I am, and then offered a pause, and he said, Now let us pray. A very keen awareness of walking with God the many years, you are very aware of the grace of God and the evil that resides not only in the world, but also in the midst of you if you do not walk with God. And that in you lies the potential for the greatest of sins if you cater to your flesh. And that it's all by the grace of God as he empowers us and enables us through his word and his Holy Spirit as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jude is a beautiful example of such a person, giving hope to many of uh, people to be saved from their unbelief. He was a half-brother of Jesus. Didn't believe in him as he was growing up, didn't believe in him during his ministry, but it was after the resurrection. And um, that will happen sometimes. You will be a Christian all your life. I remember Dr. Iron. Dr. Ironside used to be um, a lawyer, and, and he was a drunkard, alcoholic. And his mom would always, always be praying for him. Lord, save my son. And one day, Ironside said, 
in this prayer, Lord, if you can tell my mom, tell her I'm saved. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, the prayers of godly mothers and brothers and sisters and, you know, I've shared with you about my friend Joey Hernandez that uh, me and Pastor Joe Elias and Joey were the three amigos. We just partied together and all that. We grew up together and everything. And Joe and I heard the gospel and we got saved. And God called us into ministry. But Joey remained in the world. And we kept praying for him. And I would go back to his house and talk with his mom and dad and his family. And um, when his mom died, 40 years after I was born again, Joey came to the Lord. And Joey now attends Pastor Joseph Elias' church, and he's on fire. His life has turned around. It's been three and a half years. What a joy. Coming out of heavy drugs, heroin, everything. God is good. So you never stop praying until you die. Jude is um, a shining example of God's grace to use one who has rejected Jesus for a good part of his life. God had a plan for Jude from the foundation of the world. He just had a hard heart. God is patient. Jude was just a silent, faithful servant who took one day at a time, even though he wasn't noticed in name much in Scripture. You would think he would say, hey, listen, I'm the Lord's half-brother. I should have a special place here. He didn't. And I'm sure that James didn't have um, that special place in Jerusalem because he was the Lord's brother. In other words, God puts us where he directs us. This is not a club. This is not a corporation. It's not an organization. It's an organism, the Church of Jesus Christ. He asks of the church daily such as should be saved. He gives the gifts. He gives the call. He gives the anointing. He opens the doors. He takes care of us if we depend on him 100%. Zechariah 4.10 says, Not despising the day of small things. Some people are looking always to be noticed and to be up front. The true servant, he does what God has called him to do, even if he'll never be noticed. He knows he does it because God sees his heart and his work. Not comparing himself by himself or among others, as 2 Corinthians ten twelve says, lest he be unwise, not promoting himself, but humbling himself before God, that he may be exalted in due time, 1 Peter 5, 6. The promotion is irrelevant, but God is very aware of all that goes on, and he takes care of that. When you come to the Lord, you, you live life with a whole different motivation. Um, life takes a whole different turn. Uh, when I was in the world, I just lived from weekend to weekend. Um, when first day of the week on Monday for work, you went, oh, you couldn't wait, 8 o'clock, oh, 10 o'clock, first break, eh, you know, and it was like an eternity, and then 10 to 12, you know, and we've all been in jobs like that, right? And all of a sudden you become a Christian and everything changes. 
All of a sudden, you have the joy of the Lord. All of a sudden, you realize you're saved, you're forgiven. All of a sudden, you realize that Jesus is coming back. All of a sudden, you understand that people are lost and headed for hell. All of a sudden, you realize that there's nothing wrong with a house, a car, or money, or anything like that. But that's not what life's about. Because all those things are going to burn and be left behind. And so your, your, your vision becomes clear and focused. It's not blurry anymore. You know absolute truth. So this was Jude, the believer. What a contrast. Third, we have Jude, the author. One little book, not very big. <laughs> the epistle bears his name, contains only 25 verses, like Philemon. There's probably no other epistle so um, vehement against apostasy and apostates as the epistle of Jude. I think it most fitting that it precedes the book of Revelation, the unveiling of the return of Jesus Christ. The authorship is ascribed to Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, I said at the beginning, and brother of James in the very first verse of Jude. Bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. James, the author of the epistle of James, as we said, and um, the elder there in Jerusalem. Jude was a half-brother, again, to Jesus, and um, he could have been the youngest, as we said. The brothers of the Lord are apparently traveling missionaries, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. He says, now don't we have the right to have a wife go with us as Peter, Cephas, and the Lord's brothers? So the Lord's brothers ministered the gospel, and their wives went with them to minister. Paul is very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 9, 5. So we get little tits of, bits of information that we can put together. The authenticity of the epistle is verified in two ways. External evidence. The letter has a stronger witness than Second Peter, and that epistle is established as authentic. Polycarp alluded to it in 69 to 155 A.D., Theophilus of Antioch cited it in 180 A.D. Tertullian of Carthage accepted it in 150 to 222 A.D. Clement of Alexandra, 155 to 215 A.D., accepted it. Origen quoted Jude in 185 to 253 A.D. By the end of the second century, it was accepted as canonical in the Muratorium Canon of 190 A.D. The Western Church accepted it early, but the Eastern Church not until the 4th century. Eusebius, in the mid-4th century, examined Jude and accepted it as authentic and canonical. So there is no argument against the authenticity of the inspiration of the book of Jude. The other one is the internal evidence, which is the most important. What the Revelation says, does it go along with the other aspects of the Bible? The introduction claims to be written by Jude, bondservant of Jesus Christ, as we said, the brother of James, in verse 1, which is a strong internal evidence of what we have in the book of Acts. Jude distinguishes himself from the apostles in chapter 1, well, there's only one chapter, verse 17. 
directed by the Holy Spirit to contend for the faith, he says in verse 3, giving witness that the Holy Spirit is coming upon him. Even in Second Peter chapter 1, 19-21 says, The men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but they spoke as the Holy Spirit carried them along. He resembles James in style, in severity, and imagery of nature. Great similarities with the second chapter of Second Peter are seen, but it makes a different focus on the events and individuals. Some believe Second Peter was first speaking of future and then Jude of the present infiltration. It's quoted apocryphal books, Jude verse 9 and 14. So they say. But if you look at those texts, what would be the difficulty of the Holy Spirit giving this information directly? In fact, he's saying he's being led by the Spirit of God, right? He doesn't tell us he's quoting anything, right? And we've seen that God gave the same information to more than one prophet, right? Identical. So again, this is God's revelation. It's arranged in triplets, as you see in verse 10 down to 12. The judgments of God regarding Israel, angels, Sodom, Cain, Balaam, Korah, are real warnings that are given here, 5 through 7 and 11. The date of the epistle, some attempt to ascribe it to a second century date, mistakenly. And of course, because they always want to make it pseudographic that somebody wrote it in the name of Jude, not actually Jude, right? These are the higher critics, people in our higher learning, they call themselves Christians, and they bring more questions and doubt to the text than they do anything else. The epistle was written somewhere around 68 to 80. As you know, John is the last one to write his gospel and the book of Revelation, 95 or so. So, 68 to 80. Now, the purpose and theme, let's walk through it. Notice to contend for the faith, as I mentioned already, verse 3. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. There's no other faith given. There's not another faith. It's the same one. Apostates had infiltrated the church. Verse 4. Stealth. That's the word. Secretly. Stealth. Like a stealth bomber. It can't be detected. That's the word. Ungodly men who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. Denying the only Lord who had bought uh, the only God and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, parallel passages of the end time apostasy, the context is in view of the Lord's return in chapter 17 of Luke 18, 8. So you have parallel passages that go along of the internal evidence here. The last meeting with the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, 29 through 30, that some of them would draw disciples to themselves Okay, you have a parallel there. 
prior to the appearing of the Antichrist, as Paul told the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. You have the parallel there. Departure from the faith, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. These guys are infiltrating, deceiving, causing people to fall away from the faith. It quotes words of Jesus that he warned about. They're similar in Matthew seven fifteen. First John four one says, Test the spirits. Right? How do we test them? According to the revelation of God. If someone truly is speaking by the Spirit of God, they're not going to be giving something that's contrary to the gospel that we have already, the epistles that we have already. That is the plumb line. J. Vernon McGee's last message, the late J. Vernon McGee, was on Jude. And he felt that we were in the apostasy. As we look to our world, how fast has been changing in the last eight years as our nation has just been dismantled. And we see that we are being pressed into the world courts and community rather than the nation of the United States. We see how fast things are changing. There's some key words. Verse 6, 9, and 15, the word judgment. The word remember in verse 5, compassion in verse 22. There's the key phrases, common salvation in verse 3. Crept in unnoticed, stealth, verse 4. Woe to them, verse 11. The last time, verse 18. Praying in the Spirit, verse 20. Let me just give you a very simple, simple outline. You have the salutation in verse 1 and 2. The writer, the readers, the regards in verse 2. Writer and reader in verse 1. In verse 3 through 4, you have the occasion for the letter. The beginning of 3, the original intent. The remainder of verse 3, the ordained intent. In verse 4, you have the exposure of apostates. They are within the church. They are ungodly men. They abuse grace. And they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the third division is in verse 5 through 7. The past judgment of apostates. Verse 5. Unbelieving Israel. Whoa. Verse 6. Unbelieving angels. Verse 7, unbelieving Sodom and Gomorrah. Real judgments or unbelieving or being ungodly. Examples for us. The fourth division is verse 8 through 16. The present description of contemporary apostates. Verse 8 through 11, their character is given to us. 12 through 13, they're camouflage. The end of 13 to 15, 
their condemnation. Verse 16, their eternal or their carnal nature. They're in the flesh. They're out for themselves. The fifth division you find, verse 17, down to 23, the personal exhortation to the believer. Verse 19, be constantly aware of apostates. 17 through 19, be constantly aware of apostates. Second, verse 20 through 21, be constantly walking in the Spirit. Third, verse 22 and 23, be constantly laboring in the harvest. Those are good things. Then the sixth and last is the doxology, 24 to 25. The power of God to keep the saint, verse 24. The praise and glory of God that he deserves, verse 23. Powerful little letter. (laughs) Such a great letter. One put it this way. Preaching has been described this way. A mild-mannered man standing up before mild-mannered people and exhorting them to be mild-mannered. End of quote. However, the true function of preaching is to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. The church today doesn't like that. They don't like me touching politics, the evil of our leaders. They don't like me naming names. What can I say? If you're a Christian, you have to warn. If you were driving home tonight and you went by and you saw this apartment complex coming up on your left-hand side on fire in the lower floor and the people on the upper floors being totally ignorant about it, you would immediately understand the danger they were under but unaware You would do anything and everything to get their attention. Now, when they'd be looking out that window to you as you're acting like some kind of crazy man on drugs or something, they'd be looking at you saying, what's that with that guy? Man, I'll tell you, this world today, everybody's going crazy. Being unaware of the danger. But once they realized what was going on and they were delivered from that fire, I guarantee you, If they went looking for you and found you, they would not voice the opinion they had prior to the awareness. They would be so grateful to you for having saved their life. I cannot be silent to speak against the evil in the world, in the church, or anywhere else. I am a watchman and God will hold me responsible. My intent is not to be mean. My intent is not to think that I'm better than someone else. My intent is to be obedient to God according to the scriptures. To warn people to repent and to not be deceived. It's just that simple, ladies and gentlemen. I am fully aware that it could empty the church doesn't matter to me. 
Whatever God has, He has. I just have to make sure that what I do in preaching and teaching is with the intent of love and the edification of the saints. And that's all I'm responsible for. And God will take care of the rest. And so, I pray that um, you be a watchman, faithful to the Lord. Do not be intimidated by people. You know, people are flakes. You're a people. You know that. We're like weather vanes. It just depends which way the wind's blowing. The only time we're fixed and strong and courageous is if we walk in the Spirit and trust the Lord. If we don't, we will coward. We will go the easy way. You know why a river meanders, right? It's looking for the softest soil. But when a river has enough force, it cuts through no matter what. It destroys it. But a slow-running river meanders, looking for the softest soil. And gravity takes its place. That's human race. But when you become a Christian, you're like the Colorado River. You just run down and you take out anything that's in front of you. There's a big difference. Jude, great guy. Can't wait to meet him. One little epistle. Powerful. Lord, thank you for your love, your goodness. We thank you for tonight. And we pray you continue to work in us and through us. Lord, I thank you for every person you bring. And I thank you for just the radio and the people that listen. And they come and they share that they heard. And, and you use that for your glory. Lord, for the talk show we have. And, and we don't even know what you're doing with the... Um, uh, internet, radio, Lord. But we know that you are good and that you honor your word above your name, Lord, and we thank you. So have us to be uh, trusting in you, depending on you, and not to fear man but you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, you might be over the internet. If God has spoken to you, then I would not harden my heart. I would open my heart to him and say, Lord, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I agree and I believe that you died in my place and you paid the price for my sin. Would you please forgive me and make me your child? And if you do that, he will forgive you and save you right where you're at. So if you want to repent of your sins, this is your prayer, whether you're here or over the Internet. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.